Nominated for a slew of technical awards by the Motion Picture Academy of 2003, today's film was robbed of many of its much-deserved accolades, partly by The Lord of the Rings and partly by woeful ignorance. Unfortunately, it has slipped now into relative obscurity. Directed by Peter Weir, the film is set almost entirely aboard the HMS Surprise, following Russell Crowe's Captain Aubrey and Paul Bettany's Dr. Maturin as they are set upon by a French privateer at the height of the Napoleonic Wars. The film is an extraordinarily faithful depiction of naval life in the 19th century, and the epic scope explores not only the harrowing action of seafaring cannonades, but the British class system, early natural philosophy, the isolation of life on the ship, and the natural tension of close quarters, naval strategy, the pressure of command, and modern tactics of war. The film opens, escalates, and climaxes with some of the most dynamic depictions of naval warfare ever captured. And it's one of our favorites in the genre. Quicks the word and sharps the action. Today on Friendly Fire, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Welcome to Friendly Fire, a podcast where we review war movies, and yet you're here listening to it. I'm one of your hosts, Ben Harrison. <laughs> That's your intro? <laughs> and yet you're here listening to it? Uh, I just thought that I would like rewrite rewrite my intro every week, given that I haven't found one that I like yet. Doesn't and, uh, sound like it's been revised. <laughs> <laughs> That's an opening line that is unworthy of being given command of a captured ship. <laughs> As I was sitting there thinking, like, what's the pitch of this? Who would want to hear three people like us talk about this? It's and a real conflict because all I can imagine is a bunch of olds listening to it, but old people don't <laughs> listen to podcasts. Right. Yeah, we may have found the unique podcast premise that has a has zero audience. No, no, yeah. no. I think you guys I think you guys underestimate the the huge audience of baby gramps. <laughs> right? Think about all the baby grandpas that you know that are yeah. like eh, 28 to 38 and they're already so old. Is hearts the game where you collect all the hearts or you go for the queen of spades? Like you can win by losing utterly? Yeah, you shoot the moon. Maybe that's the goal of this podcast. By, <laughs> by going directly to the bottom, we can be the best war film podcast. Well, yeah. So like, I mean, we have no data on this yet because we're recording a whole bunch of episodes dark. And at this point in, in history, we, we have no idea if, if there's any proof to this concept. Ben, I had an idea that our tagline would be associated to the movie that we're watching uh, on that particular episode. I mean, that's fairly obvious and has not occurred to me, so... I wrote down a tagline, Ben, if you wouldn't mind. I'd like to audition <laughs> oh, that for the team. There's some kind of um, coup d'etat happening. It, it's a very familiar feeling having someone come for my lunch money. <laughs> Let's just see how it plays in the room, all right? Okay. Okay. <clears throat> all right. I've just walked into my... To, the, to where the part is being cast. I've said my hellos. <laughs> You're listening to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's ship shape and Bristol fashion. <laughs> uh, what do you think? 
sharps the word and bolds the action at him. <laughs> That's See, a real swashbuckling intro, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> but but sharps the word and bolds the action is is exactly the phrase that we should have gone with from the beginning. That's what that's what it yeah. should be. It should it shouldn't just be a reference to the movie. It should be the best line of the movie. That's a great rule. We watched the movie this week, Master and Commander, <laughs> The Far Side of the World, the 20, 2003 Peter Weir Napoleonic War naval combat movie. Holy fucking shit. If it were made in 1993, it would come on two VHS cassettes. It's that long. <laughs> it's a it's a long one and Holy mackerel, it seems like an impossible feat making this movie. Like, all of the moving parts and, like, shrapnel and dangling torn ropes that have to be, like, torn in the right way in each scene. Rope continuity was pretty great in this movie. My wife has not seen this film, and I was trying to describe the experience of watching this to her. And I was like, there's just no part of the movie that I think fails at any point. Like, it's got a great... score it's got a great cast it's got incredible sound it's got visuals that just knock my socks off the name of the ship was a big fail to me the surprise (laughs) is the name of a carnival cruise ship ben (laughs) surprise is no good i love the movie you've got that all wrong i mean if you are out it in some kind of man of war out in the middle of the ocean and this ship like pops up behind you that is not the kind of surprise that a carnival cruise ship would be it's a bad surprise, Adam. <laughs> it's as if it were called the congratulations or something. It's just a little too light. <laughs> it's like surprise, like... As in element. Yeah, like a surprise... Like surprise, motherfuckers? <laughs> exactly. Surprise like a juggalo would say. It's not like surprise, like surprise. It's like surprise. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. You got to get that deep register, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Surprise! The uh, the the ICP song on the on the uh, on the credits I thought was was maybe a bad call. Uh, this is truly a great movie. I I have to confess that this is uh, one of the very few movies I own. I own this already wow. on DVD, digital video disc. I don't have a way to play it in my home anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I cared enough about it to own it at some point. And actually, it was given to me as a gift by Jason Finn, drummer of the Presidents of the hmm. United States of America. He gave it to me as a gift. And I am almost certain that he has watched it 500 times. But it was one of those gifts that you give to a friend where you're like, this is my family Bible. This is a thing that I truly believe in. I would like to share it with you. That sort of softens the blow. But John, I don't think I've ever told you this, but I think one of the most shameful moments of my life occurred <laughs> at, I think it was your 40th birthday party. And I and you invited me and my wife to it. And we were like, oh my God, what do we get John Roderick for his birthday? Like it, it was an impossible feat. Uh-huh. And we were at the time like obsessed with the show Mad Men, which at the time was a secretly great show that no one watched except for me. My wife. And we were like, well, shit, like maybe we'll give him something that we're really enjoying. And that will be like, you know, that's a that's a currency you trade among friends. That'll be thoughtful. So we get to this birthday party and John's being given like handmade wind chimes and like stuff to hang in his barn and like really awesome like antiques 
And we handed over our uh, season one collection of Mad Men and, and felt like the burning faces of inadequacy. And so to know that like one of your closest friends has also given you a DVD as a gift like makes you feel a little bit better. Yeah, although he didn't, it wasn't my 40th birthday party. He just handed it to me in a cafe. But yeah, yeah. But Adam, seriously, when my daughter was born and we were sitting around, we were scrounging around the house like, oh, what can we do? You you have a new child. You're trapped. We've seriously, we've played every game of Scrabble you can play. We've done every crossword puzzle. I was like, huh, this is weird. Look at this. I have the first season of Mad Men. Where did this come from? Oh. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't remember. <laughs> no, then I was like, oh, Adam and right, weird. Okay, well, let's watch it. And we did watch it. So. Oh, that's good. The only reason I have any familiarity with Mad Men is because of that, because of you. So thank you for keeping me culturally in the game. Welcome to Friendly Fire, a podcast <laughs> about war movies and also the secret shames we carry and the friendships we have for each other. <laughs> I think the only gift I ever gave John was a book on the natural history of human sexuality. Hmm. Well, the next time I have a kid, maybe I'll consult it. <laughs> <laughs> those make great lullabies those chapters yeah. I, I don't know like where to start or end on this movie because i just like i can't say enough good about it i feel like i feel like there might not be a way to make an hour of audio content about it because i just feel so much warmth in my heart for this film how do we feel about russell crowe maybe that's a good place to start yeah at the time he was he was biggest star in the world quality he was in the conversation anyway there are a lot of things about Russell Crowe that I should be, based on my normals, you know, sort of like tastes, I should not like Russell Crowe, but he is one of the <laughs> actors that has made it, he made it through whatever my problems with him were. You know, like typically I don't like, <laughs> I don't like actors that throw phones at people. Um, <laughs> he seems like in his personal life, maybe not a great person. Yeah. And there have been several, you know, there have been, he's taken some roles that are like, man, that's, you know, typical of a guy that'll throw a phone at a, at a person. But, but no, I like him. And the, the only issue I have with his performance is that his accent just feels a little bit in and out to me. He missed a lot of his elocution classes in the Naval Academy. <laughs> <laughs> I watch this movie with headphones on most oh. most of the time when I watch it um, because of the sound. Like, they take so much care to make every piece of splintered mast that's going through a sail, you know, make the right tearing noise. <laughs> it's like... It's like so like pornographically rich you know, on the sound front. They went and found real, like... 12-pound cannons and fired real cannonballs, like repeatedly fired <laughs> cannonballs and had microphones both on the cannons and microphones like 800 yards out so that they could actually capture the sound of canning, cannonballs whizzing overhead. I mean, they did so much work on the sound in this movie and it won an Oscar for yeah. sound, right? Yeah, it was one of the only awards they received at the Academy Awards was for Which sound. Seems crazy, but crazy. But the sound, the sound is, is like impeccable. How do you not win Best Director for this? Because uh, Lord of the Rings won everything oh, that that's year, didn't it? Right. Oh God! Oh. And my axe. So Russell Crowe, I think, is amazing in this movie, and the only reason that uh, that I even ha say that about his accent 
is that everyone is so amazing in this movie. And there are, yeah. it's the classic example of a ton of unknown actors, a ton of like people who this was their first role. All those, all those people playing the midshipmen, this was all their, you know, their first movie role ever. They, the, the casting directors like went to Eton and all these like British prep schools and auditioned all, a bunch of 14 year old kids yeah. picked some that would be sort of exactly the people that were doing this job with exact, you know, that with all of their sort of innocent character and they all did a fantastic job. There's not a single person that ever draws you out of the film with their clunky acting or their wrong look or their, you know, their bad diction. That's a great point. Everyone is on the level in such a great way that you're never taken out of the story or distracted by it. It's a movie that like earns a bunch of crazy moments that like, that seem impossible to get to in a way that feels authentic. Like there's this moment where they're like all sitting around in the officer's um, mess or I guess it's just the captain's quarters converted into dinner time for officers and they just pry an anecdote about Lord Nelson from from the captain. And it's like, it's like incredibly cheesy. And then he like doubles down on it and makes it like super moving and and like evocative. And there's there's not a lot of movies that can get to that, you know? I was really surprised that that's what his character was going to be. Like all movies of this kind set in this time period to me have felt like uh, you had the mean sea captain, the the right. barnacled asshole, and right away, Captain Jack is beloved. Right, and 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 the phrase "zeal for king and country," which is like you know, from our lens, is uh, has plenty of baggage on it, but for this character, is like kind of the highest ideal, and uh, and it's something he admires. You know, patriotism is really motivating these guys. You know, they're in the midst of a of a war that if you really think about like the context of the Napoleonic wars, there's not a center to them. There's not a clear objective except sort of Napoleon is taking over and the British are also trying to take over like the, 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 the wars between England and France. I mean, they lasted a hundred years during this period. They were constantly fighting each other. It was just like a clash of civilizations. How many of those years was it the time it took to tell everyone that the war was over? <laughs> right. Well, as getting the word out, yeah, they would, they would, it seems uh, impossible. They'd, they'd write a, a note on parchment and they'd send it out. And by the time the letter got there, there was a new war. So it was just like uh, the war never stopped. Yeah. That scene where they dropped the mail off at that island. I was like, oh, man, what are the hopes that those letters ever get home? But that system worked somehow because the next boat that came through headed the other direction. Yeah. Did the French actually have a hope of, quote, carrying the war into the Pacific with one ship? I mean, they were working as a privateer, right? So all they were trying to do, they weren't out there trying to battle other warships. They were just trying to disrupt English shipping. They didn't expect the surprise, and uh, hence the name, and they didn't want, <laughs> like, their goal in, in trying to destroy the surprise was just to get the sort of the one competition out of the way, and then every little English ship that they found out there that was right. that was trying to gather any kind of resources, they're the, the big bully at that point in that part of mm -hmm. the Pacific. Everything's a crime of opportunity. Yeah, right. Like, they sank that whaler, and they took all that ambergris 
Like, oh, we're at war. Sorry, you guys are just out here killing whales, I know, but some somewhere 6,000 miles away, our countries are at war, so we're going to sink your ship and, you know, impress you all into slavery. The tension between the, like, scientific ambitions of the Doctor and the the sort of pressing needs of the warship brought that out for me. Like, I think about contemporary times, too. Like, why do we spend... X number of dollars on military and Y number of dollars on science. And, and it always seems like the military stuff is more important and more urgent. And yet the science stuff is, is more lasting, you know, like the individual victories in Napoleonic naval engagements don't really mean much to us today, but the discoveries of the naturalists that visited, for example, the Galapagos islands, are like super duper important. The thing is, we have the confidence of retrospect to know that that character is a is analogous to Darwin, right. and so all of his little bug collecting we feel is really pregnant. And his conversations, you know, with the littlest midshipman, which is kind of my nickname for you, Ben, um, <laughs> uh, about like, you know, do the, did God make these bugs look like thorns? Does God make them change? Yes, certainly. But do they also change themselves? All that stuff is just like tantalizing because we know the outcome. But at the time, you know, as, as Russell Crowe, as Aubrey says at one point, I do not have time for your hobbies, sir. I just really wanted to admire that naturalist outfit that the doctor had, you know, <laughs> his bathrobe. I was like, and more screen time for this. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like in a in most ways the surgeon was the ship's XO. Is was that only the case on this ship because they were friends, or because that's how it was on these ships? Um, well, he had there was the XO that gets promoted at the end. Spoiler alert. Yeah, the second in command, his... Um, First lieutenant, is that his rank, Tom Pullings? I guess it would be. I suppose, well, it's like it's like on your other uh, podcast about Star Trek. The doctor resides in an elevated position on a in a small military company, doesn't he? Yeah, I certainly understand the utility. I mean, you lose that guy and, and your ship's basically fucked because, like... That is not an OSHA-approved job site there. I mean, that, uh, <laughs> the, littlest, the littlest yeoman broke an arm and then had that arm taken from him yeah. not long after. So little things can turn into big things pretty fast. And the doctor's going to be one of the most educated people, and particularly, I mean, that's what's so interesting about Aubrey, too. One of, the, one of the great, his great qualities is that all this suggestion, of course, that he has a classical education, that he's a violinist and... That he's capable, he's certainly capable of seeing what the doctor is on about. He's sympathetic to it. And that that suggests that he's a member of this aristocratic thinking family, but he's also a man of duty. So the doctor, yeah, is his gets to be his conscience and in some ways the conscience of the boat. But the doctor's also the friend of the seaman because he's saving their lives on a day-to-day. And that was what was so cool about that early scene where he he fitted that hammered coin into the old ma- into the hole in the old man's head. And yeah. we saw immediately, like, everyone on the boat was like, the doctor is a badass. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
your success or failure, your, your life in some ways hinged upon whether or not the crew felt personal loyalty to you. Was that old man always crazy or did the, did the coin pressed into his skull make him crazy after, like with his, with his ghost stories and whatnot? I don't think he says anything before his injury. Yeah, I think the coin was meant to be like the jumping off point for now. He's a he's a, a spiritualist, or he's receiving messages through his tinfoil hat. Evil comes from evil, evil things, and evil is. But he's also the oldest character on the boat. So if there was somebody that had that sort of wisdom of the sea, Davy mm. Jones locker talk type, <laughs> it would be him. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. all it takes is for him to hold up a craggy finger and point it at Hollum before the entire crew turns on him, right? You know, the inter- <laughs> the sort of enterprising carpenter's mate or whoever he is, the one that, that originally brings the model of the ship, the Averon, the Aileron, what, what is the name of the, the French boat? Acheron. Acheron, right. He brings that model. So he's some kind of carpenter's mate. And I think he's also the guy that's repairing the figurehead after she gets shot away and talking to her romantically. Mm. He is the one. Carving that, some new boobs. Yeah, exactly. He's the, he's the one that takes up <laughs> the old man's charge. And then, you know, he's the young, vigorous antagonist who, you know, once he gets it in his head, then he's out there stirring up trouble because because he was uh, responsible for the death of his friend by not climbing up that uh, mast, or I guess I guess the proper word is clamber, not clambering up that mast fast enough um, to to help him secure that sail. He was he was blown out. You know you're gonna get a couple of scenes in a war at sea movie, and one of them you're guaranteed to get is that awful death at sea, like either either the slow drowning or the cutaway or whatever. And this cutaway death scene was pretty affecting. Oof. They really draw it out, and it's so stormy, and uh, and he's a likable character, yeah. and you have the captain having to make a choice between the crew and one man. And I thought one of the ways that they showed this contrast in a totally new way to me was the cheering of the crew below decks, not knowing why the ship had been righted after right. cutting the piece of mast away. They're, they're cheering at the same time that they've sealed the death of one of their best guys. You just hope in your heart that that guy couldn't hear that through, yeah. the, through the squall. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, that makes it way worse, I think. <laughs> they never liked me anyway. You know they only had 10 days to shoot at sea for this movie? What? Yeah. The rest of it was done in a tank. Pretty wild. Well, they say never start yeah. a land war in Asia and never make a, a movie at sea. And with kids. And animals. Yeah. <laughs> they <laughs> did, did the whole thing. They did the trifecta. <laughs> in some ways, it's very much like a submarine movie. Because mm, yeah. this is another example of a mo- movie that is almost entirely dudes- we only see a couple of women and just briefly like, you know, some native girls in fancy dresses on a boat, one of whom inexplicably captures Aubrey's eye. And yeah. we have this long kind of feels like a long sequence where he's looking at this girl and just kind of can't pull himself away from her, even though 
I think it's meant to be further character development for Aubrey because we do see him looking at a picture of his wife in an earlier scene. But here he is sort of captivated by this girl in a way that you almost think like, is he the first time I watched it? I was like, is he about to bring her on board or what's what is he going to stay stay here another night? Like, hold everything. <laughs> well, I think once they put the walls back up on his quarters, you know what's going to happen. He's he's going <laughs> to he's going to transform that part of the boat into the crankshack. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really interesting thing about that that only happens a couple times in the in the movie. I'm glad you caught it though, Adam. Where it almost feels like an adaptation from the stage where he's yeah. out on the cannon level of the ship working with the men, getting the cannons going, improving their times. And then he walks toward the stern and the crew actually builds the wall of his, of his office and, and quarters. But as he walks through, like they're coming behind with the walls and reestablish that. And it, and it just, well, they shot all those parts in a hotel conference room. (laughs) That's what, but it did. It it felt almost like some kind of black box alternative theater production on the Lower East Side. Yeah. It was like, and now the captain's quarters, (laughs) but they did it. It was so automatic that it seemed as though there were people on the boat that just did that. They waited for the captain to pass. And they'd build the wall behind him. And then when he was ready to get up, they'd pull it back down again. Yeah, he never snaps his fingers and says like, yeah. because he could just have been headed that aft to pick up a pen and come back. Yeah. Right? But he's just like, no, 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 don't, don't build the walls. I'm just, I'm just getting some tobacco. He's like, you know where I could use a wall uh, instead of the sheet that covers the entrance to my bathroom? How about that? <laughs> but but when you think about the the... You know, the way that it is a submarine movie mm-hmm. where yeah. they're training, training, training. They've got to they've got to get faster because they're only going to have one shot, you know. And also the like unknowability of like where the enemy is going to show up mm-hmm. is very is very submarine like. And and, you know, like if if you if you can see the enemy, the enemy can see you. It's a uh, it's it's totally a submarine movie. I mean, it borrows all those conventions, but it really, really conjures that. It, I mean, I think way more than than any of the submarine movies that we've watched. I guess because World War Two is quite a bit closer, but the, this this movie captures an entire world so concretely, so much so that you you can imagine, you can picture their lives when they're when they're back in England, almost, you know, you can imagine that class stratification and how it works. This kid is 14 years old, but he's an officer on the boat. And it's because he's the son of some aristocratic landowning Lord. He's actually, you know, he's deferred to in some ways socially, even by Aubrey, you know, Lord, whatever his name is, Lord one arm, Lord Blankenly. Yeah. (laughs) And, he could th- this kid could be a liability on the boat because he's you know he's joined the navy as some sort of ritual of his class but it ends up yeah. that he is so governed by that idea of of service and honor and dignity and so forth that he is a, you know he ends up being a credit to the ship yeah i mean like at one point i think it's the uh, the big like locker room motivational speech before the last battle Russell Crowe says, this ship is England. And that really like locks that idea in place for me. Like mm-hmm. 
every everything about the way this ship operates is meant to be like a simulation to some extent of life back home. So the like rigidity and hierarchy and the and the class things are like important in a way that you know like you can just rely on them in England and here they have to be like very carefully maintained at all times. They have to be carefully maintained back in England, too. It's just that it's not such a tight little pressure bomb of it. That's why Aubrey gets so pissed at uh, at Hollem when he notices him getting bullied. Like, that yeah. structure needs to be maintained. When that guy, uh, the guy who shoulders Hollem, gets whipped for being a bully. Twelve lashes. How does he sleep in that hammock afterwards? <laughs> It's hard to sleep on your belly in a hammock. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, how does he do it? You're probably above deck sleeping on your stomach, right? I'm a stomach sleeper, so this probably wouldn't bother me, but God. And why does he get 12 lashes and the guy who takes a shot at the bird and hits the doctor instead, he's just fine. That guy should have been punished way worse. Well, because he's the, I mean, he's the captain of the Marines. I guess. He gets, uh, you know, he was very apologetic. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Apology accepted, huh? <laughs> when Dick Cheney shoots some uh, some Texas uh, billionaire in the face with a shotgun, it's all like, oh, terribly sorry, sir. Oh, don't think yeah, another word you're about at a it, certain you know? level, that's sufficient. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. a terrible scene, and you really feel like, and that's, a, that's another example of of this this thing that Ben is talking about, like, we spent so much money on DARPA building uh, killer robots and and sonic weapons that make people poop. And, you know, the sort of trailing edge of it is like, oh, and also we invented the Internet. Here, this is a situation like a very unusual. We've cited a very unusual albatross, sir. Kill it. <laughs> I think I've had a sonic poop weapon aimed at me for my entire life. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, man. You don't you don't need that thing. I'll just poop. Yeah, well, that's the thing. When, when we start watching futuristic war movies, it's all going to be about sonic pooping. That's a good question. Is is futuristic war an eligible category for us? I think so. Aren't we going to watch Starship Troopers? It's not on the list right now, but I suppose it might as well be. There's a scene I wanted to talk about in Master and Commander, which was the eulogizing of a hated man mm -hmm. toward the yeah. end and how that's portrayed in the film. This is after Hollum takes a, takes a cannonball in his hands and jumps over the side of the ship and sinks to Davy Jones's locker. Which feels very related to like stabbing yourself in the chest with a knife or something. That is a, that is such an intentional way to do it. It's almost impossible to imagine. Uh, Aubrey has the Bible open and then shuts it. I mean, well, the Bible is handed to him open to the chapter of Jonah. And which uh, is basically like uh, like roasting him <laughs> because the, the Jonah is the is the shorthand name for for the bad luck scapegoat figure yeah. on on any ship. But you could tell, I mean, it was, it was, uh, I think it was Aubrey's steward that handed him the Bible open to Jonah. And you could see mm -hmm. on his face as Aubrey sort of looked at it and closed the book and handed it back that it was the most natural thing in the world for him to do. He didn't intend it as like, ha ha. It was yeah. just like, well, we all know that he was the Jonah. So here is the Bible open to this chapter. And, and so I'm assuming that's what you want, right? 
Well, Aubrey believes in that. I mean, Aubrey is every bit as as superstitious as the most superstitious character on the ship. But he knows enough not to... He knows his job is to be a man of reason. Well, yeah. there's also the tension between order and superstition, because I think even more powerful to him than the idea of superstition is maintaining the order of the ship. And he can't have the idea of a haunted person disrupt that. Right. Which is why I don't think he was willing to read that that chapter and verse, because he needs to to beat that back. Sure, he has to anticipate a time when the crew is scared of some boogeyman that he can't abide. Right. Well done, lads. Extra ration of grog for all of you. Do you guys want to uh, hear a, uh, my favorite goof from the IMDb trivia of this oh, movie? Boy, let's hear oh, your yeah. favorite goof. This one was a hard one to find, one that was like explicitly some military quibble, but uh, I think I found a pretty good one, which is traditionally toasts in the British Navy are not preceded by two. For example, Lord Nelson, rather than to Lord Nelson. Wow. Mm. So they fucked up the toasts. Wow. They burned the toasts. I love the I love that there was a guy who watched this movie and was like, I've got to take to the internet and clear something up. <laughs> I'd like to just I'd just like to rewind for a second, put a little exclamation point next to Adam's they burned the toasts gag. <laughs> you know, that's nice. And I, I just don't want that. You know, that lots to, of times I'll just throw away a line like that and no one will regard it. But I I'm don't glad want that to be one of that. these situations where we chop the lines and Adam's little gag just goes down behind a swell. We uh, have an entire other podcast that's dedicated to that proposition. <laughs> right! Stop a battery! Fire! Uh, toward the end of this film, the French ship pulls the whaler over, right? Yeah. And the entire film, we're, we're told that the French ship is, is way, is too much of a match for the, for the congratulations. The, right. it's the congratulations. like to fight it, <laughs> to fight it squared up would mean suicide for, for lucky Captain Jack. And so, and so by repainting their own vessel and masquerading as a whaler, they're able to get inside, they get in close. But the one part of the film that sort of like, took me out of it was like even if you are the biggest and the best like why are you pulling over a car and walking up to it without your hand on the on the holster like they are not just unprepared but they are like oblivious entirely to the idea that there's that they could be shot at and boarded by this whaler well do whalers have like cannons in that kind of number i mean even I imagine a, a whaler would have a couple of cannons just for point defense, but they wouldn't have enough to like make a difference in a fight. Right. A whaler would have, I mean, I think the, I think what we're meant to assume is that the French ship has pulled over plenty of whalers before without incident. Right. And when a whaler knows that it's, you know, that it's caught, they just go, Ugh, okay. And you know, their, their only defense is to run and they couldn't outrun this ship. So, it is confusing to me that you wouldn't, I think that there is something about, I mean, just as when you are like a World War II gunner, you spend a lot of time drilling on the silhouettes of different airplanes. Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. know at a distance what you're looking at in the sky. Surely the captain of the French boat, the Acheron, 
would be just as well versed as as Aubrey is in naval architecture enough to know this boat is not a whaler just because of the way it sits in the water and you know as you pull up next yeah. to it you're going to see all the little doors that are camouflaging the cannons and go wait a minute <laughs> what are those little doors and so there there is a little moment of suspension of disbelief for me at least as the Acheron gets close enough to the surprise to really take her measure or something but it's thrilling enough that they are going to that they're going to spring this trap and I think that there's historic precedence for it. This is a method that used to happen at the time that if you were outgunned, you could kind of strike your colors and put a little bit of blue paint on it and make some smoke and act like something that you're not. And then, yo ho, you know, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> I think it actually happened. Well, this movie is different from the other naval war movies we've seen before because of what it doesn't show you that the others do. You never change perspectives. We're never on the enemy ship seeing how they're trying to figure stuff out. We never see the other captain except through the punched-in shot from a telescope. Yeah. And so, I mean, it needs you to headcanon this stuff a little bit. And for a two-hour and 40-minute movie or whatever, I thought... I thought it was strange that they could omit anything. I thought they would have coverage of all sides. And it is interestingly locked in to just our protagonist and his crew. Well, I think that that's like a really effective device in the way the story is told. Because through the whole of the, of the film, Aubrey is like filled with admiration for this French captain. Because it's like... It's like, holy shit, this guy has pulled my pants down two times. Yeah. And that little moment at the end when he realizes that the French captain has, in fact, done something incredibly cowardly, which is conceal his identity uh, so that he can't be arrested as the captain of, of the ship. It is that third. He realizes that he's been eye to eye with that captain and he didn't even know it. That's such a curious scene. I've spent many hours ruminating on it, chewing my cud over that decision of the French captain. It's mentioned that British prisoners of war would be taken to the guillotine. What was the form of corporal punishment that the Britons would give the French had they been taken back? Like, was there a... You would be hanged. That would just be hanging style? Yeah. Okay. And... And the the guillotine reference that was just more of like some propaganda. That's like, do you want the do you want the swastika flying over Washington D.C. No, right. <laughs> I don't think they he literally felt like the like British sailors were going to get the guillotine. Wow. Um, did you guys have guys in this movie, John? Who's your guy? I had two guys in this movie. Uh, two guys that I went and researched afterwards. Researched the actors, and it turns out. They're both named Max, which seems strange, as, you know, the, their actual person, the actor that, that played the role. And one of them was uh, Max, the older Max, that played midshipman Calamy, and he was the one that was promoted to lieutenant immediately <laughs> before being killed in the, the battle. Yeah, the kind of rosy-cheeked The rosy-cheeked Max. And then the other one was midshipman, midshipman Blakeney, Lord Blakeney, 
who oh my my uh, my namesake your namesake who was played <laughs> by an actor named Max Perkis, and both of these actors were actual like English public school kids. Uh, Matt, Max Perkis, who played Blakeney, was 14 years old, literally 14 in the making of this film. And I don't think Amazing. Max Bennett's was much older. But they were both so perfect, just absolutely perfectly cast, and they were such good actors. And if I had to pick one, it would be Blakeney, because that scene pretty early on where he loses his arm and he's on the operating table and he's kind of delirious there. He's full of laudanum and he's got gangrene and the doctor starts to saw into his arm and they put a little thing of leather in his teeth and he clenches his teeth. He plays it so masterfully that it affected me as a father. You know, he's just a child and it was, he just did such a tremendous job of both being a boy and a man in that scene that I fell in love with him forever Adam, who was your guy? My guy was uh, was Higgins, who you may know as uh, assistant surgeon, also <laughs> known as not a a surgeon not good enough to perform surgery. There's something about this guy that really rang as familiar. Um, like his story, he gets a couple of scenes to tell his story. The first one, when the chief surgeon gets shot by the guy shooting at the bird. Uh, he needs to get the bullet taken out because the bullet has some of his clothing in it and his clothing is so gross that it, if it stays in his body for a length of time, <laughs> it's going to get super pussy and disgusting and it's not going to be great for anyone. So they, they wheel the surgeon onto one of the Galapagos Islands to, to do the surgery on it. And this, this surgeon's mate is like, the captain asks him, like, can you do it? Can you Can you get the bullet out? And the guy's like, I need to read, man. I need to read like the chapter on pulling bullets out. I need to read about all of these utensils I need to use. Like he clearly did not expect the field promotion to to chief surgeon. And yeah. like the last three days I've been shooting this thing uh, for the Gates Foundation and I was one of three camera people. At any given point, I will fully admit I am the I am gonna be the lowest in quality camera person on any set if I'm with any other camera person especially because most other camera people I shoot with are 60 years old so like my 38 years do not match up at all with the, these guys' lifetime of, of experience so uh, during the shoot I got field promoted to being the guy who shoots on stage instead of one of the guys who, who locks on a wide shot and doesn't have to do anything for three days I was like walking around Jimmy Carter and and Bill Gates with a camera like trying to keep a shot focused and composed and like and one of the things that one of the senior camera people told me afterwards after I had sort of equivocated in my ability to do that job especially when compared <laughs> to the other camera guys on set he pulled me aside later and he's like uh it's okay to like doubt your ability to do that but like if you feel close to an ability to do something especially in an environment like this you get so few chances to like pull yourself up into something you may be uncomfortable in but need the rep like need need the experience of doing that i hope you will be more willing to just not say anything and do the thing 
you're being asked to do. And he wasn't chastising me in a way that like you did wrong by admitting your lack of experience. He was just like, it's okay to do a thing and be quiet about it because I think it's better for you in the long run. And that, that to me felt like, you know, even though the, the surgeon's mate didn't get to perform the surgery, like the chief surgeon basically did it on himself in a real Rambo fashion. Like, it made me think that, you know, he equivocated a long time. He said he had to do some reading and studying first, and maybe he should have just grabbed the tweezers and and gone in and gotten the bullet. But that, uh, he's my guy for that. He also had a great scene at the end, like, he he uses his hand to stop a cannon from firing. And that was (laughs) like, that's like... He fully realizes his usefulness. Like the, his surgeon's hands were good for nothing earlier, <laughs> but but they totally stopped a cannon from firing and saved a bunch of lives, like in a totally different way. And I thought that was cool too. It's funny, Adam, that you found you found the one Don Rickles in this entire film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like there yeah. is no comedic relief in the movie at all, except for this one guy who's bugging out his eyes and being like, "Wow, yeah." Yeah, I found my Rickles. What about you, Ben? Who's your guy? I wrote down uh, Lord Blankany as well. Uh, so I, I don't know that we can say much more about him, but the one the, the one shot that I is like the defining image of this movie to me is when in the final battle they've like blown a hole in the in the bow of the Acheron, and he and his men who have been manning the gun decks like run through this hole onto the gun deck of the Acheron. And he's like the first one through the breach and takes down one of the French sailors. And it's just like the most badass moment. And it's this little kid who's had his arm cut off. And uh, it's like, it's, it's just like, it's a a totally earned like, yeah, you know? (laughs) And uh, I don't know. I just, I think I totally agree with John that that character is just beautifully, beautifully drawn and beautifully performed. So. I really love how the experience didn't harden him. He remained a child throughout, yeah. even as his, after his arm was taken, he didn't turn dark. I thought that was a great choice. <laughs> yeah. On that note, why don't we, uh, why don't we select our next film? Uh, John, do you want to pick a number between one and 22? Well, I always go with number 13. <laughs> uh, you have selected Stalag 17, Billy Ooh. Wilder's 1953 World War II prison film. Might be a hard one for us to find online, but I, uh, I think it's worth the trouble. Yeah, I am guessing this is going to be another movie with not very many female characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, interestingly, I think that though John has added many, many, many films to our list... So far, we have only picked ones that Adam and I have put on it. So uh, somehow, somehow, your guessing has uh, has kept you has kept you very honest. <laughs> well, that's fine. <laughs> uh, when we get when we get to my uh, to my films, we'll um, well we'll know it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that'll be that'll be next week. Uh, in the meantime, we should thank Rob Schulte, our producer editor, and. Uh, everybody who has supported the show, uh, much appreciated. Uh, anybody else we got to uh, tip our hats to? All of uh, our men and women in uniform. That's a good. That's a good one. We should. We should have been doing that from the beginning. Mm-hmm. We're real assholes. <laughs> well, you're the littlest midshipman, so. 
I went from Mustang to Littlest Midshipman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a lateral move or a downgrade. <laughs> Littlest Midshipman was the uh, first draft of that Spin Doctors tune that ended up being Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. <laughs> you people know that. Friendly Fire is a MaximumFun.org podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick. Produced by Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter, at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at Cut for Time. John is at John Roderick, and Rob is at Rob K. Schulte. Support the production of Friendly Fire by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.